Welcome to Talks at Advent, homilies and reflections given at the Church of the Advent, a Western Rite Orthodox mission in Atlanta, Georgia. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit, God is one. Amen. Today is the first Sunday after Easter, of course. It's called Low Sunday often in our service books and um, in, in reference to it, and it's a, a name that's, a, it's a comparative adjective, low, as in not the high ceremony of Easter, which is the highest ceremony we're going to experience all year. It is the Feast of Feasts, the chief feast. Easter is our highest moment in the liturgical year. It's the highest moment in our spiritual life. And so, the Sunday following gets this sort of comparative title, Low Sunday. But even though it seems like a diss on the Sunday following Easter, what it really means is that this Sunday is, in its very name, kind of linked to the last Sunday. This Sunday, its nature comes in reference to the Sunday before it, to Easter Sunday. And in that sense, it actually sets the tone for every single Sunday following for the rest of the year. Low Sunday is a remarkable day because it is the trendsetter. It begins the life following the resurrection of Jesus. What does the resurrection of Jesus mean? Well, we begin to experience the implications of it today on Low Sunday. It's linked to Easter by being its octave day. That means it follows eight days after and we have octaves of all of our major feast days. There's an eight-day period where, um, like Christmas, for example, we celebrate an octave of Christmas, meaning that for eight days, all of the liturgics kind of are in reference to Christmas, and then on the eighth day after, uh, we, we use the same colics and, and we use a lot of the same prayers. And this eight-day uh, sequence of celebration after a major feast is established first primarily from today eight days after Easter. Why eight days? Well, it's one week later, so that seems kind of obvious. You just do it, you know, the, the, the week after. But eight days is theologically significant. And this pattern of celebrating an octave of a feast comes from the feast whose octave we're celebrating today, Easter. Easter itself is what establishes this concept of the eighth day. Now, why is this? From the very beginning of creation, God created the heavens and the earth. There was evening and there was morning, one day, right? And then he created other things. There was evening, there was morning the second day. There was evening, there was morning the third day. This pattern continues on until what? And then on the seventh day, God rested and sanctified it and called it the Sabbath. And then the cycle starts over. So from the beginning, creation is the cycle of seven days. And that cycle had continued on and on from the creation of the world until the first day of the new week of the new creation. And Christians early on began realizing the Sunday that Jesus rose from the dead was not like the restart that we've been experiencing since the beginning of the world. This is a different, this is a new day. So it's not just the first day of the week. It's also the eighth day, the day that transitions us from the old creation 
to the new creation that God will eventually fulfill and finish, but it begins on Easter. And so this concept of the eighth day became significant for the Christian church. And so we established the concept of the octave, a feast of eight days, where it begins on the first day and it ends on the first slash eighth day. And that's what today, Low Sunday, establishes for us in our liturgical life. So this day is really significant. It, it means a lot to us theologically, liturgically. It's an important Sunday. It's not named Low Sunday, FYI, because of the historically low attendance uh, following the big party, which is Easter. Um, we can always aim to do better, right? No, it's, it's low in regard the uh, the comparative degree of ceremony because nothing matches Easter, but we still have the ceremony. We're still here celebrating today. So today, the first day and the eighth day, what does the church serve up to us in terms of our epistle and gospel reading? Specifically in the gospel reading, we hear about Jesus meeting his disciples that same day, the first day of the week. And he comes to them and he says, peace be with you. And they all have the benefit of seeing the risen Christ with their own eyes. They see him standing before them, talking to them, breathing on them. They feel his breath. And what they see in his hands and his side are the wounds that he suffered on the cross. And then he leaves them. And like the women were telling the truth. In uh, morning prayer, we heard about how two disciples were headed out to the, to the country, to another town, and Jesus met them there and opened the scriptures to them. And they didn't know, they didn't know it was him talking to them until he, what, broke bread, took bread, blessed it, broke it, and gave it to them. And then their eyes were opened, and they ran back to Jerusalem, and they told all of the 11 and the others with them, we saw him. And they said, yeah, he appeared to the women earlier this morning, but he also appeared to Peter, and now he's appeared to us in this upper room. But guess who wasn't there with them? Poor Thomas. Poor Thomas. Thomas the doubter. Why did Thomas doubt? Thomas doubted because Thomas didn't have the benefit of seeing the risen Lord like everybody else. Thomas was not unique in his attitude. No one would have, no one believed the women when they first said, hey, we saw an angel, told us Jesus is risen. Mary Magdalene actually saw Jesus in the garden. What did they do? That's great news. No, they want to verify it. They ran to the tomb and found it empty. They wanted to see for themselves. Thomas was the only one left after this first day of the week that didn't get the benefit of this. So what happens on the eighth day then, the next first day of the week? Jesus appears to them again, and Thomas is there this time. And what he said, I will not believe you just like you didn't believe anyone else until I see it just like you saw it. When I see it, then I'll believe. And Jesus condescended to this need of his and said, here I am. What Thomas shows us is, frankly, um, a rational faith. It's a faith that wants to verify as far as possible. Did he believe in Jesus while following him because of his words, because of his actions, because of his character, his spirit? Yes, he had faith in Jesus. He knew him and he had faith in what Jesus could do because Jesus had done it. 
he had shown him. He had shown him instances of healing miracles, so Thomas believed Jesus can heal. His faith followed his reason, and that is not a bad thing. People today think that faith means believing something based on zero reason. That is not what faith means. What faith means is having a reason and believing it, even though you can't verify it to, I don't know, a scientific degree. Even though your senses don't show you everything you hope that your senses could show you, believing is still uh, taking the step and saying, I affirm this because I have this whole matrix of rational and uh, sensible reasons. Why should Thomas possibly have believed? Unlike uh, the other disciples, so they didn't believe initially either. But then they all, except Thomas, saw. And now it's not just two or three women who went to the tomb and saw an angel or heard something or maybe saw Jesus but thought he was the gardener. Now it's not just two disciples who didn't recognize Jesus, which is weird at first, but then they did, and then they came back and said, yeah, he's really, he's really risen. No, now it's all 10 of the other disciples saying to Thomas, hey, we believe that Jesus is risen because he appeared to us. We saw him. Poor Thomas. <laughs> what, what, a, what a rough go he had, which is why the Lord didn't upbraid him when he came to show himself. We do hear in Mark's gospel that the Lord upbraided the disciples for their lack of faith eventually, but we don't get the full context. What that probably is referring to is after they had seen him multiple times, they still were having a hard time believing or understanding what was going on, right? They didn't know fully what he was staying. He wasn't, he's not just back to do the old stuff he was doing. This is a new thing going on, and the disciples didn't get that. That's what Jesus is saying, your faith is too little. You aren't listening to me. You don't understand what I'm doing. What Thomas was having trouble believing was just the foundation of the faith, not the ongoing, not the, the mission of Jesus, not the commission that he would send the disciples out into the world, not the, the higher theology of what this means, the implications for all of creation. No, just the basic, Jesus is risen as he said. Thomas couldn't get there. So Jesus stepped into that room and provided him with what he needed to believe. Thomas needed that foundation in order to move forward because we still have quite an Easter season to go where we're going to walk out even more ramifications of the resurrection. What does the resurrection of Christ mean? It is the foundation of our life. Our lives are predicated on Jesus risen. Otherwise, nothing we're doing makes sense. Why in the world are we here this morning if Jesus isn't risen from the dead? It makes no sense. Our faith is a faith based on facts. It's rooted in history. It has sharp edges to it. If someone could demonstrate definitively that Jesus did not rise from the dead, here's his body, we can DNA test it, it shows up, here's the inscription, Jesus of Nazareth, uh, one-time Messiah pretender. Boom. That would rightly shake our faith. We would have to be shaken, right? Now, we don't believe that that's going to happen because we do have faith based on reason. We have the testimony of so many. We have 
the testimony of men who went on to give of themselves day and night to suffer pain, hunger, beatings, and finally martyrdom. Why? Because they were deceived? Or because they were trying to deceive? No, our faith is grounded in reason. But we need those proofs. We need to hear the testimony of men that we trust. We need to hear that there were even some who doubted and they finally believed after Jesus did for them what they needed, as in show them. But then what did Jesus say to this poor disciple who needed to see? He said, because you have seen me, you believed, but blessed are those, happy are those. The presence of God and he smiles on them is, is with these people who believe in me, but haven't seen the way you are seeing me. So this foundational part of our faith, that Jesus is risen, and then inspires us to believe that Jesus is God, just like St. Thomas. As soon as he sees Jesus risen, what does he say? My Lord and my God, this is our foundation. Jesus is risen, Jesus is God. We need to come back to this foundation, this root, this baby milk of our faith over and over and over again because it is nourishing. Before we can go on to the higher, uh, harder to digest food of faith, you know, the, the meat and potatoes, the stringy vegetables, we need to nourish ourselves with this foundational faith. Our introit this morning says, as newborn babies who desire this rational milk, we look to God. We are newborn babies this low Sunday, feeding on the foundations of our faith again, reminding ourselves Jesus is risen. He's been seen. He's shown himself. He convinced Mary and the women at the tomb. He convinced Peter when he saw him. He convinced the 11 and eventually, or the 10 and eventually the 11, including Thomas. And then he showed himself to 500 other people at one time, at least on one occasion that we know of, according to St. Paul. And then Stephen sees him standing at the, the throne of God during his martyrdom. St. Paul's knocked off his horse right on his, well, he falls off his horse because Jesus hits him with his reality. And St. Paul sees him. Jesus is risen. He is a reality that has to be reckoned with. That is what we need to hold on to at our core. That's our foundation. Now, because this faith is real food to us, we also, in the context of this service, in reaffirming and strengthening our faith, eat another food today. And that food is a food of faith. It's the food of Jesus. It's called the Eucharist, and it is food indeed, as Jesus says in John 6, 55. Blessed are uh, my, my food, my flesh is food indeed, and my blood is drink indeed. Now, it's true that when we eat and drink of the Eucharist, what our senses tell us is that we are eating and drinking bread and wine. But our senses have to work in concert with our faith here because what we believe we are encountering is exactly what St. Thomas encountered, which is the risen body and blood of Jesus. 
there's a hymn that we sing on uh, uh, various times of the year, but especially on the feast of Corpus Christi, the body of Christ. It was written by Thomas Aquinas, and there are two stanzas that talk about this problem of encountering what we know to be God in his flesh and blood, but we sense bread and wine. The literal translation of his hymn says, the word as flesh makes real bread into flesh by his word. And the wine becomes the blood of Christ. And if sense, our senses are deficient to strengthen our sincere hearts, then faith alone suffices. Therefore, this great sacrament, let us reverence, let us bow before, and let the old covenant give way to the new rite. And let faith stand forth as a substitute for the defect of our senses. Where our senses fail, where, like Jesus said, we do not see and yet have believed, then blessed are we. Why do we think this? Why do we believe this? Where did this come from? Well, this came from the very beginning. It came from the words of Jesus himself. But because it came from the words of Jesus and the disciples knew it and believed it and passed it on to their inheritors of, as the teachers of the faith, the bishops, who passed it on to the next generation of the guardians of the faith. We know from the earliest decades, the earliest generations of the church, that everyone believed this. Listen to what, let's see, this is um, Justin Martyr, circa AD 100 to 165. He's writing a defense of Christianity to the emperor of Rome, who is starting to persecute Christians. Now, Justin would later die for his faith, thus the title martyr. But listen to what he says about this in explaining what Christians are doing. We do not receive these as common bread or common drink, but just as our Savior Christ was made flesh through the word of God and had both flesh and blood for our salvation, so also we have been taught that the food which has been Eucharized, that has been made the Eucharist by the word of prayer from him, that is Jesus, is the flesh and blood of the incarnate Jesus. This is Justin writing in 100 AD. All right, this is while St. John possibly is still alive, the last disciple to die. This is, this is a man who knew the apostle, uh, well, who knew people who knew the apostles. This next guy, though, Irenaeus of Lyon, he definitely knew some of the apostles. Listen to what he writes, circa 130 or so. When, therefore, the mixed cup and baked bread receives the word of God and becomes the Eucharist, the body of Christ, and from these the substance of our flesh is increased and supported, how can they say that the flesh is not capable of receiving the gift of God, which is eternal life? Flesh, that is our flesh, is nourished by the body and the blood of the Lord and is, in fact, a member of him. Athanasius of Alexandria, moving on a little bit, 296 to 373 says this, so long as the prayers and invocations have not yet been made, up there it's just mere bread and a mere cup. But when the great and wondrous prayers have been recited, then the bread becomes the body and the cup becomes the blood of Jesus Christ. When the great prayers and holy supplications are sent up, the word descends upon the bread and the cup and it becomes his body. Hillary. Poitiers, 315 to 367. He himself declares, 
For my flesh is real food, and my blood is real drink. He who eats my flesh and drinks my blood abides in me, and I in him. It is no longer permitted, therefore, for us to raise doubts about the nature of the body and the blood. For according to the statement of the Lord himself, as well as our faith, this is indeed flesh and blood. And these things that we receive bring it about that we are in Christ and Christ in us. How deeply we are in him through the sacrament of the flesh and blood. Gregory of Nyssa, 335 to 395, says this, Rightly then do we believe that now also the bread which is consecrated by the word of God is changed into the body of God, the word. By dispensation of his grace, he disseminates himself in every believer through that flesh whose substance comes from bread and wine, blending himself with the bodies of the believers to secure that by this union with the immortal, man, too, may be a sharer in incorruption. Obviously, could go on and on. The quotations never end. The earliest defenders of the faith, willing to suffer and die for it, believed that bread and wine, with the prayers of Christ, the words that we say that Christ gave us to say, <laughs> becomes his body and his blood. His body and blood we can eat and drink, and to us it tastes like bread and wine. What an amazing gift. So this is almost like the midway mystery. Okay, it's not St. Thomas's sight, the man Jesus standing in front of us, speaking to us and showing us the wounds. But it's also not nothing. Okay, it's not a bare symbol. It's not just to remind us something. It is Christ. So we see somewhat, not like Thomas did, but we do see somewhat, but we still are required to uh, use our faith to apprehend that what is before us is the body and blood of Christ. Why does he give himself to us like this? So that our embodied selves can participate in his life. Not just our minds and imaginations, not just our hearts, but our very bodies and souls can partake of Jesus Christ's own life through his body and blood. We're talking about foundations, the foundations of the faith. This is foundational. This is as necessary to our faith as anything else. If Christ is present to us truly in his body and blood, then we need to understand what it is that we're encountering here. We need to understand that. We have to have that foundation. And guess what? Just as the fathers were saying, when we partake of him, he actually strengthens us, including our faith. So as we renew our faith, like babies drinking milk again, that first nourishment, the thing that makes us strong so that we can mature and grow and eat things that are harder to digest and bigger and, and make us bigger and stronger, let's come and take this nourishment to ourselves for the increase of our faith. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit, God is one. Amen. Talks at Advent. Homilies and reflections given at the Church of the Advent, a Western Rite Orthodox mission in Atlanta, Georgia.